The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning. It's good to be with you, and uh, I'm glad to see that uh, a lot of people survived the blizzard that came through on Tuesday. I hope, uh, I hope you could see at least one of the two flakes that fell on Birmingham during our snow day. Um, so my freshman and sophomore year, I had the opportunity to speak at a number of small Baptist churches throughout Alabama through a program called Sanford Sunday. But this is the first opportunity I've ever gotten to speak to a congregation that I know really well, to speak to some of my friends um, and coworkers and mentors. So I can't tell you how excited I've been for the, for the opportunity that um, I have this morning. And I want to begin by asking you to think of a time that you forgot something really important. So maybe you forgot it was your day to pick your kid up from school one day. Or maybe you forgot your wallet, your keys, your passport on the morning of a big trip. Uh, maybe you forgot your best friend's birthday. And not just any friend, but that one friend that always bends over backwards to make everyone else feel special on their big day. Whatever it is, we've all done it at some point or another, because to be human is to forget, and to forget is to let people down, whether it be ourselves or those around us. Is forgetting a sin? On the one hand, we don't usually put forgetting in the sin category. It's not listed in the seven deadly sins, and the Ten Commandments don't mention it. Um, the Catholic Church actually has a long list of 40 questions meant to help the parishioner examine themselves before they go in for confession, and they include questions like, have I profaned the use of God's name? Have I spoken ill of others? Have I denied my faith in word or deed? And 37 other questions like it, but not one of them says anything about forgetting. So on the one hand, we don't usually put forgetting in the sin category. But on the other hand, we often apologize for it as if it were a sin. So we'll say to our supervisors at work or our significant others, or our friends, I'm so, so sorry I forgot about X, Y, or Z. Won't you please forgive me? Moreover, we recognize that forgetting can be quite destructive. Now, when we forget small things like bringing your leftovers to work for lunch or charging your laptop at night, it might only create a small problem, but that's not, what really, that's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when we forget the bigger things. Um, like that it's your five-year wedding anniversary that your spouse has been looking forward to for a long time, or that today is the day your dad died 10 years ago and your mom really needs your presence and your comfort right now. What I'm also talking about is the even bigger things. In this 17th century Dutch painting, um, I think Rembrandt gets close to capturing some of the pain that our forgetting problem can cause. See, in this painting, Rembrandt depicts Moses on his way down from Mount Sinai um, at the exact moment when he turns the corner and is devastated to find that the Israelites have already forgotten the God that delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and decided to build a golden calf to worship instead. Now, certainly we know Moses was angry when he saw the Israelites worshiping the golden calf because the Bible tells us that he was, but I don't think anger is the emotion that Rembrandt is focusing on in this painting. Uh, it seems to me that this painting highlights the emotions Moses must have been feeling before the rage was able to build. So shock, confusion, and disappointment. I can picture this Moses um, not responding immediately with an angry lecture, 
but with more of a pained question. Why? Why did you betray the God that loves you so much? I don't understand. And then tossing, maybe even just dropping the precious tablets that he's holding in defeat. Fast forward just a couple of decades, and after learning the difficult lesson of how to live as a righteous and faithful community under God by wandering through the desert for 40 years, um, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land in victory for the first time. But before they go in, Moses asks them to wait for just a second, because he warns them that after God establishes the Israelites as a free people with their own community and their own resources, they'll be strongly tempted to again forget the covenant that they have with God like they did at Sinai. In other words, Moses warns that after the Israelites have reaped the benefit of living in a free, just, and stable society, they'll forget the very way of life that made that their prosperity possible in the first place. And throughout the 12 to 15 year, 100 history of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we find exactly that. There's a constant cycle of the Hebrew people forgetting the God who loves them infinitely and wants to bless them because they only remember God when they desperately need him. The Israelite people were so short-minded, in fact, God asked one of his prophets, Hosea, to marry a prostitute because it's the only representation he could think of that came close to representing the pain Israelites' chronic forgetting problem caused him. Time and time again, the Israelites forgot the compassion and faithfulness of their true husband and looked for satisfaction in the arms of false lovers instead. And time and time again, it causes them emptiness and exile. When I first read the story of the empty tomb in Luke 24 to prepare for this sermon, I couldn't help but think that this specific unit of the Easter resurrection story was really kind of about this problem of forgetting and the importance of remembering. In Luke 9.22, Jesus predicts his resurrection very clearly, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Furthermore, in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection again the night that he's arrested, saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Now fast forward just three days to our story in Luke 24, and when the women stumble across an empty tomb, they're perplexed. They were sure the body would be there because they had completely forgotten Jesus' words about his own resurrection that he gave them just three days earlier. Their first thought is, who took the body and why? And the, tell, the text tells us that they don't remember Jesus' words until two angels had to show up and remind them, saying, don't you remember? He told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, and he's going to have to be crucified. But he'll raise again, and you can be reunited with him. Unfortunately, the women aren't the only ones who forgot. When they sprint back to tell the 11 remaining disciples um, what had happened, 10 of them think the women are flat out out of their minds and speaking nonsense in their grief, and everyone but Peter is still too terrified of the Roman and Jewish officials to even go back to the tomb and see for themselves what had happened. And here's the most interesting part of it all. In English, the story takes place at a tomb, but the Greek word for tomb actually carries a slightly different connotation than just a place where dead people are buried. 
the Greek word for tomb is mnemeon, and it comes from the Greek, it comes from the root word mnema, which means to remember. So Luke 24 begins not in a tomb, but what should be literally translated a place for remembering. The woman go to this place for remembering, carrying spices to anoint Jesus' body, which is a practice that's traditionally meant to prepare the deceased for future bodily resurrection. But when the woman see the empty tomb, the possibility of Jesus actually being raised from the dead doesn't even cross their minds. There is a significant problem in Luke 24, 1 through 12, and in our own lives, and it's the problem of forgetting. So why do we forget? Maybe if we can kind of work to uncover some of the roots of our forgetting problem, we can start moving towards some solutions. So let's look at each of the characters in the story. First, there are the 10 disciples who were so sure that they would never see their teacher again. They called the woman's story of angels in an empty tomb, um, what in the Greek is actually a technical medical term used to describe the wild talk of the sick in their delirium. So why did the disciples assume that the woman were literally insane? Why did they forget so badly? I think it might have to do with their initial response to Jesus' prediction in the first place. So the first time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in 922, the disciples' response isn't recorded because Jesus mentions it in a longer sermon about what it means to be one of his followers. But later in the second half of chapter 9, after the transfiguration, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection again. And this time, the response of the disciples is recorded for us. And Luke 9.45 tells us that they, the disciples, did not understand what this meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it, so they did not grasp it. So I think one of the reasons we forget is because, like the disciples, lots of times we never really got it in the first place. Have you ever had to ask someone for directions before? Maybe you were searching frantically to find your gate at a big airport before your next con connecting flight. Um, maybe you were looking for some obscure item at Target. Um, maybe you were in a new town and Google Maps wasn't working for some reason and we don't know how to function when that happens. Although some of us definitely get there sooner than others, we've almost all reached the point where we're so desperate for guidance that we'll stop someone and ask them for help. And when I first arrived on Sanford's campus as a freshman, I used to have to do this all the time. If you've ever been on Sanford's campus, you know that it's not huge, it's not the University of Alabama, but all the buildings look virtually the same, which makes it really confusing <laughs> for a young freshman. So anyway, when I first um, had to ask for directions, usually I got answers that went something like this. Uh, yeah, so you're gonna want to start heading across the quad towards Ben Brown, turn left at Hodges, turn right at the hot plate, start heading towards Bobby Bowden, and the doors will be on your left. And trying not to appear like the ignorant young freshman that I was, I nodded right along. But then, after just a few steps across the quad, I realized, of course, that I'd forgot every word that they just said, because I didn't understand what the Sanford code meant in the first place, and I was too scared to ask questions for clarification. So maybe one of the solutions to our forgetting problem is to work hard to make sure we don't just passively receive information about God on Sunday mornings, but that we're actively and intentionally working to understand our relationship with God better throughout the week. As followers of Christ, we've been called to have a deep understanding 
of what it means to be a child of God so that when the storm comes and the, water, and the waters rise, our faith is built on a firm foundation. You see, God has given us a difficult but a weighty and important task, the task of being lights in a dark world. And with that in mind, we can't be content with a superficial understanding of our faith. In our busy and hectic lives, we've really got to try to make time for small groups, for family devotions, for personal encounters with Christ through his word. We've got to dig deeper to understand our creator better, even though it might require a lot of effort and intentionality, and even though it might require us to sacrifice some good things that are constantly pulling our time and attention away from our Lord. If the disciples had the courage to ask Jesus questions, even though it might have revealed their own ignorance, maybe they would have remembered on Easter Sunday. If the disciples cared enough about Jesus to make every effort they could to understand what he was trying to communicate them, to, to communicate to them, then maybe Peter wouldn't have been the only one to run to the tomb after he was gone. So let's dig deeper. Let's make a commitment to spend time with our creator each day. Let's try to understand, and maybe we'll be better at remembering. What about the woman? Why did they forget? Well, of course, one of the women was Mary, Jesus' mother, and I think keeping this in mind is key to answering this question. Mary would not have been unfamiliar with the concept of a crucifixion, nor would any of the other women who went to see Jesus on Easter morning, nor would anyone living under Roman occupation in the first century CE for that matter. The Romans were a ruthless empire that didn't gain control over half the known world by accident. They had mastered the art of instilling fear in all the people that they ruled over by mastering the art of the public execution. And I think Mary, with a mother's concern, might have known all too well what Jesus was referring to when he alluded to a future in which he would be handed over to the Romans. But of course, even though Mary might have understood what Jesus meant, she certainly would have done all within her power to block the thought of her son being publicly executed from her mind. In other words, I think Mary and the other woman that loved Jesus enough to go to his tomb on Easter morning didn't remember because they didn't want to. In other words, I think the woman didn't remember because they did everything they possibly could to forget. And is this not a common pattern in the long story of God's relationship with humanity? Think again about the Israelites' chronic forgetting problem that we talked about a little bit earlier. Maybe when Israel kept on forgetting God's commands in the Old Testament, it's because they didn't want to remember. Uh, maybe they tried as hard as they could to forget that they weren't capable of creating peace and prosperity on their own, but were instead completely dependent on their creator and his love for them. Even today, don't we do all that we can to forget the same truth? We constantly want to put control of our own happiness in our own hands, and we don't want to remember that the way to live well doesn't have to be created or discovered. We don't want to remember and Lord knows why, that the only path to abundant human life has already been set before us, before us and it's the simple path of obey, obeying and depending on the one that made us and knows what's best for us. So unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be an easy solution to our forgetting problem because our forgetting problem has to do with our most fundamental desires 
and those don't change overnight. This brings me to a larger point I'm trying to make, to what is, in fact, the point of this whole sermon, and to what I think is the point of Luke 24, 1 through 12. And that is, as hard as we try to remember, we'll still forget every once in a while. Sanctification is a long process. And I think the point of Luke 24, 1 through 12 is, is that that's okay, because even when we forget, and it is a matter of when, not if, God always remembers. Yes, it's vitally important to do all we can to work against the poisonous human tendency to forget by trying to make sure we understand when we're confused or ignorant and by constantly examining our desires to make sure they line up with the faith that we profess. But we have to know that the ultimate solution to our forgetting problem, like all problem, lies in God's faithfulness and not our own. And God is faithful. That's why in the book of Isaiah, God says to the forgetting prone Israelites, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, but I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands and I'll never forget you. God is faithful and that's why after we've wasted all the gifts he's given us on each of our own unique and foolish attempts to find whatever sort of pleasure or meaning we can, Um, from any source as long as it's not God himself. He'll still always be waiting on the front porch with his arms wide open, ready to welcome us and kill the fatted calf for us once we've returned. God is faithful, and that's why um, even though Jesus told everyone, the woman and the disciples, that he would meet them in Galilee after he rose again, he still sent angels to be stationed at his tomb in Jerusalem to point them back in the right direction when their faith faltered. God is faithful, and that's why even though we forget constantly, we can still have hope because he always remembers. So then what's the application for all of this? I think the application can actually be found in the last two characters of our story this morning. Notice that when the women run back from the tomb, Luke makes sure to inform us they told the 11 disciples what had happened, but originally there were 12. Luke wants us to know that someone is missing. You see, after Judas forgot Jesus in the worst way by betraying him for some money, Judas assumed that Jesus is, uh, Judas assumed that God would necessarily forget him. He assumed that Jesus's love operates on the same principles that human love operates on, and so uh, Jesus would not be capable of the radical forgiveness that his severe forgetting problem required. It's not that Judas never recognized the weight of what he had done. Um, It seems that there might have even come a point when he remembered how important his friendship to Jesus was to him because Luke tells us that he ends up using the money that he had gotten from betraying Jesus to purchase a field in which he could hang himself. So in the end, Judas's biggest problem was not that he forgot God in the first place, although that was a really, really big problem. Judas's biggest problem was that he didn't understand that God always remembers even when we forget, that his love is unconditional. And since he didn't understand, he missed out on the radical reconciliation that is always possible with our infinitely loving and infinitely remembering God. The application of 24, 1 through 12 is, I think, quite clear. Don't be like Judas. 
no matter how far you fall away, no matter how badly you forget your love for God, don't be like Judas. We've got to be like Peter. Like Judas, Peter also forgot his love for God in the worst way. I think lots of times we like to put Judas and Peter's mistakes on different levels because Judas was a bit more premeditated. But in the end, they ended up doing the exact same thing. Peter, too, betrayed Jesus when he needed him most. Not for money, but for personal security and safety. The difference, though, between Peter and Judas is that when Peter forgot God, he didn't assume that God had necessarily forgotten him. All the other disciples thought the women were crazy, but Peter, he got up and he ran to the tomb. If it hasn't happened to you already, there will come a day when you will forget God badly. Sanctification is a long process. Just look at the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament or the story of the disciples in each of the four Gospels I'm not sure exactly what it will look like for you, but there will come a day when you will be strongly tempted to run further and further away from God because you're sure that even his love can't overcome the wrong that you've committed. It's a natural temptation, and if God loved like humans do, it would probably be our only option. But the great news is that God doesn't love like us. So in that terrible moment when you recognize you've just betrayed the Son of the living God, you must do all you can do. You, we must do all you can to resist the temptation to run still further away. Don't be like Judas. Be like Peter. Because even though we forget our love for God constantly, he never forgets his love for us. And one of the greatest representations of the unconditional nature of God's love is um, the Lord's Supper, which Pastor John is about to lead us in now. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. Oh.